This is the Future of Cybercrime podcast, a new show dedicated to helping security practitioners on the front lines of defending their organization from the cybercrime underground. I'm your host, Zyra Perzato, former Gartner analyst, information security and risk strategist, and storyteller. Now, let's jump right into today's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Future of Cybercrime podcast, where we talk about the cybercrime underground. Thanks for listening in today and for watching. As you might tell, we have now moved to video. So this is our first video podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Harlan Carvey. Harlan is a senior incident responder at Huntress with over 20 years in the cybersecurity industry. His accomplishments include nine published works, one of which is the first book of its kind regarding analysis of the Windows registry. And he's also an accomplished public speaker, an innovative researcher, and a very engaged analyst. Actually, the reason we got in touch is because Harlan engaged with the Future of Cybercrime podcast. And he's always so very prolific in the best way on LinkedIn regarding this field. So thanks for chatting with me today, Harlan. Thanks for having me. appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, before we get started, I know I've missed a few things. So why don't you tell us all a little bit more about yourself and your background and what you do? Sure. So I started out in the military, and I, I don't usually talk about that because it's pretty much irrelevant, but I know that there's probably more than a few of your viewers that are either recently transitioned military veterans or soon-to-be transitioned military veterans, and that's a, a group that I engage with quite a bit, assisting with uh, mentoring and basically helping them overcome the uh, imposter syndrome. So I started out in the military, and I transitioned in 1997. I went directly into vulnerability assessments and was having a great time doing that kind of work. Then at a certain point, we started having customers. We would tell them, hey, you've got this vulnerability and it's trivial to take advantage of it. And they started asking the tough questions like, well, has anybody done that? And that's what transitioned me into digital forensics and incident response. And as I moved in that direction, I started to see that a lot of my background from the military, a lot of the uh, -the on-the-job training, boots-on-the-ground kind of experiences that I had served me extremely well when performing uh, digital forensics and incident response, especially the incident response component. There was an advantage in that I had a lot of background and I'm going to say training (laughs) in experiences and dealing with different types of individuals that were non-technical but under pressure. And also, there was an advantage that my military background offered, which was a lot of the individuals that I was engaging with were also veterans as well. And so there was sort of a a built-in kind of rapport that went on there. And I started out doing the on-site response where you back up a rider truck, and if they've got 3,000 servers, then we're going to image 3,000 servers (laughs) and take all the data, you know, the old school way of doing it. And we moved into triaging, and then we moved into the use of EDR tools, either already deployed or deploying them as part of the incident response. So what's been really interesting to me to see over the past uh, two and a half decades to see the transition that that we've gone from the original sort of on-site, collect full images all the way into what we're doing now to include a decoupling of the DF and IR components and separating those into separate individuals because they are distinct skill sets. And I think what a lot of organizations have found is that, hey, we've got some people that are really good at digital forensics and we've got some people that are really good at incident response. We just don't have anybody that's really good at both together. So by decoupling those, we start to see things like, and this is a great benefit for folks that are either looking to transition to into cybersecurity or transition within cybersecurity itself, is that by decoupling those two, they've opened up opportunities. Hmm. 
So okay. now you can be an incident responder, but I don't know that much about digital forensics, but that's okay because we've decoupled the DF from the IR. So a few things you've said there, we can move on to other questions, but I'd like sure. to bring light to something. In the cybersecurity industry, I do frequently see people who served in the military now in leadership positions mm-hmm. there in the industry. And I find the transition still an easy one for a lot of people today. Where are the commonalities? Well, I think there's not so much commonalities as much as advantages. I mean, you've got the life experience. You've encountered the work environment, but under perhaps a more stringent or more austere environment. So you didn't have the same things available to you. I mean, we got to think about it. If you're doing you know, logistics, for example, you know, there's a difference between doing logistics, you know, for deployed in, you know, a foreign country than there is in doing logistics here in the U.S. for, you know, Sears Roebuck or something like that. So working in an austere environment and being able to know what information you need to make those decisions and making those decisions, operating in a completely different environment and then moving into the private sector, I think, you know, there are some similarities, but I think there are also some advantages. Hey, look, I've got more, (laughs) which is something we encounter when we leave the military. You know, I've got more trucks, I've got more people, I've got more this, I've got more technology. I have more information available to me to make the decisions. So you not only have more, but you're used to operating in not just with less, but in a more austere environment. So I I think that's an advantage and experience that we bring. A great advantage. I was thinking about the technical language, technical capabilities you have to learn as well in cybersecurity and just how challenging that is for some people to conceive of moving from their industry into Mm -hmm. cybersecurity. And was that a challenge for you? Is that continuously a challenge for anyone serving today? I mean, I know now there's a big focus on cybersecurity, but maybe mm. in your time in the transition, was that a hurdle? Was that a difficulty? It was at first, but I think that one of the advantages of you know just life experience and having worked before is that you realize that there are certain things that are, some people are saying that are important, and they're saying it with you know they're enunciating, they're saying it emphatically, but then you realize that within the overall scope, is it really that important? You know, when I first got out of the military and I I completed graduate school before leaving the military, I worked with a young man on on our team that was uh, constantly talking about recompiling his Linux kernel. You know, it's all he could talk about. You know, and I was like, oh man, I'm never going to be able to keep up with this guy technically. Well, I quickly realized that what he was doing is a complete waste of time. (laughs) (laughs) How was that? How was that? Why are you constantly recompiling your kernel? What's the reason? And he couldn't articulate it. Hmm. It was just something he did. It's like, are you adding new drivers? You're adding new components? You know, are you adding, you know, are you taking a, a video card out, putting a new one in? No. Why are we doing this? You know, what was the reason why we're doing this? And so it was very important to him, even though he couldn't articulate why it was important. It was just something he needed to do. <laughs> yeah, but that's it, such a common problem today. <laughs> really? General. Is it? Is it's it? Like, <laughs> we need to take a risk-based perspective. We need right. to, do, you know, a lot of things. And you're like, well, how do you intend on doing that? So so here's a great perspective. We were doing, and some of your listeners could probably go right to Google, but we were doing war dialing at the time. So imagine a Windows-based laptop with a modem in it. And you probably want to Google modem as well. (laughs) But we were basically scanning phone systems and waiting for the receiver on the opposite end to pick up and then trying to determine, is this a fax machine? Is it like a, you know, does a person answer because it's a phone or is this a modem plugged into the back of a computer? And so why was he recompiling his Linux kernel? We weren't using Linux. You know, so I initially came into the role as like, okay, this person is really technical. They're doing things I don't understand. I'm not sure of the tech, you know, the terminology. 
I'm not sure what they're doing. And, you know, within a couple of weeks, I was realizing, well, that's a complete waste of time. You know, we use Windows. We use THC scan and tone lock as our tools. They're all Windows based. And then you begin to see if it's like, well, wait a minute. You know, he's spending time recompiling his kernel. But when you read his reports, it's like, you know, they're scribbled in crayon. I mean, what am I supposed to do with this? So, you know, you initially get over that, that imposter syndrome when you take a good solid look at, you know, based on your experiences, because you've done this multiple times before, you know, as a member of the military, you're constantly moving around and transitioning. So you go to boot camp, it's the first experience, then you move on to your next school, then you move on to in in the Marine Corps, the fleet Marine uh, force, and you're constantly the new guy. Anytime you move to a new unit, you're the new guy. So you've got to learn. And so you're used to developing the process, the thought process of, you know, understanding what's important here, what, you know, is somebody trying to pull my leg? Are they sending me on a snipe hunt? You know, or is this something that's really, really valuable that we need to do? And, you know, I think the military in some aspects has really taken a lot of the need for that out because of the commonality and training. But still, when you go to a different unit, you're going to run into that. Um, Everybody does something a little bit differently. So you have that in your background. And so you transition this is already part of your thought process. All right. It, yeah. Thinking quick, thinking smart, thinking through the fluff. That's what I'm hearing yeah. from you. It's like, See, seeing through the smoke, seeing through the fluff, mm. understanding that what somebody says, is this actually important to the job or is it just important to you? Oh, that kind of discernment, it's a character trait. Mm-hmm. Someone yeah. has to have that. Yeah. Someone has to have that. Uh, but it's a learned skill too. Yeah, yeah. And the willingness to learn that is... A big thing, or you're just going to end up saying the same terminology all the time. Right. But it serves that that same thought process, if you really think about it, as an incident responder, it serves serves profoundly well. Because you walk into a new environment, you know, in 20 years of doing incident response, I never walked into an environment that I was familiar with. And you never will. That. You can have the same computers, the same networks, the same switches and routers and same everything. But it's going to be different because it's different people. So everything's going to be different. It's a different political environment. It's a different societal environment. It's a different technical environment. So you have to be able to adjust as an incident responder. And so having that in your background, having already learned that multiple times, you come in with that mindset and you're saying, okay, I'm going to learn this. I'm going to look at what's important and I'm going to apply it to the template of I'm here to do incident response. I'm a consultant. This is what I do. I'm here to provide this service to my customer. And that's how we're going to do it. So you mm-hmm. just process through that information. Well, that sounds like, I think, a very valuable skill for a lot of folks. Very much so. Yeah. That's it. So let's talk about the state of the cybercrime threat intelligence world today. How would you describe it? Let's take it from two <laughs> perspectives, right? It's a generic, very, very general yeah. cybercrime threat intelligence. Let's leave it to you and your devices to answer that from the perspective of an attacker and a perspective of an incident responder. Okay, so let me preface this by saying that my perspective is boots on the ground. Now, like you mentioned at the beginning, I have listened to a couple of the podcasts that mm-hmm. you've had. And I see that there's a difference. There's various levels of individuals, you know, that, you know, you've got, you've had academics, you know, and I come from a, a very boots on the ground practitioner type of perspective. I often thought that I should wear a t-shirt when I went on incident response that says, I obviate compliance. Because regardless of how you answer the compliance questionnaire, I know the truth. I, I, see, I see the logs, you know, I see the registry. I know how it's set, you know. I, I when, Don't be in the room with the auditor. Right, right, Unless you have right. a good poker face. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sorry. I have to leave because I'm going to laugh out loud. I'm sorry. As, as the kids like to say, I'm going to LOL. 
Yeah. So that's my perspective. And so the state of cybercrime intelligence or cyber threat intelligence is, I think, it's a component within the overall approach to defense, if you will. Offense, obviously, as well. But from my perspective to defense, you incorporate SOC analysts, uh, DFER analysts, all want to incorporate uh, threat intelligence where, where it's possible to do so because it makes our jobs more efficient. We can get a completer view faster if we're able to use that threat intelligence. Unfortunately, I think that in too many cases, we still have too many self-inflicted silos, if you will, in that some organizations that have threat intelligence capabilities are completely separate and distinct business units from incident response. Okay. So let's, uh, do you mind explaining that for everyone? Sure. So I'm an incident responder. You know, I'm going to go on site and I'm going to see something that I've never seen before. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to likely want to get some threat intelligence. And I've had incidents where I've gone on where I've been able to call back to the office and say, hey, you know, do we have any intelligence on this? I'm going to send you some hashes or some file names, or even I'm just going to, I'm going to send you this file. So we have any threat intelligence around this at all, like a threat actor group or anything else associated with this. That'll point me to where to look for things like other artifacts, persistence mechanisms, things like that. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to use that information to leverage my work. But look at the sources that we get from some threat intelligence sources. It's some threat intelligence organizations focus solely on open sources. So they'll look at other open reporting and they'll go through virus total. But how much information are they actually getting from incidents? like from actual incident investigations. So how much are they able to feed back that value? So let's say, for instance, I'm on an incident response and the threat intelligence team has some information, but it's not the result, for whatever reason, it's not the result of, of an actual incident investigation. So they give me some information. And then what I should be doing is saying, you know what? I gave you this file, you analyzed it, And you gave me information around that file, not metadata from the file necessarily, but other threat intelligence information about things like persistence mechanisms, or this is associated with this group and that we've seen this group do X, Y, and Z. That's great. It helps me out. Okay. But I see something different. When I actually dig into the data itself, I see something different. So what I should be doing is I should be sharing that back. Hey, this is your intelligence right now. I found something different. I should be sharing it back so that that threat intelligence group is able to say, okay, what we see here is a completely different threat actor group, or we see the threat actor group modifying their TTPs. That's what should be happening. But we don't, across the board, and I'm not saying it's 100%, but across the board, generally speaking, we don't have that in our culture. We don't have the culture where digital forensic analysts are digging in and developing things like, hey, this incident happened at your organization. Here's the things you can do to protect yourself. Here's detections. I'm going to take data from this customer who didn't have our EDR tool. Um, I'm going to take the data and I'm going to produce from that data, I'm going to produce detections that we then deploy into our SOC. So I'm going to work with the detections engineers to develop new detections based on this information or higher fidelity detections. We don't have that as part of our culture because it's not part of our business model. And I think more importantly, well, what does the customer want? Remember, all of this is all driven by money. (laughs) So what is the customer going to pay for? When you do an incident response engagement, the customer is not paying you to develop detections to protect somebody else. The customer is paying you to perform that incident response engagement and provide answers to them. All right. Well, let's go back to the initial problem we spoke about, which is a feedback loop. Yes. What would you do to make that feedback loop better and then the intelligence collection a better process? Because it seems like 
the problem you discussed, we have threat intelligence analysts that are flirting around the perimeter of a problem, whereas you're saying, no, no, this is the source of it. It's right there in the center. This is mm -hmm. a problem. Work with the problem I've given you, and everyone's giving you just information that's around that problem that doesn't really speak to the problem. So why that? Why that to begin with? Well, that's because that's how the business is set up, right? In some organizations, uh, not all, but in some organizations, the incident response team is a completely separate business unit. They've got their own metrics. They've got their own processes. You know, they may not be like at the boots on the ground level. They may not be tightly integrated with, say, a SOC or with threat intelligence. Now, that doesn't mean they won't go out and look for threat intelligence. They won't have access to, you know, they might have access to an internal portal where they can say, well, I've got this hash. And instead of going to virus total, I'm going to dump this hash on the internal portal and see if there's anything there. But who's populating the portal? Mm. Who's populating the data source behind that? Are other incident responders populating that? Like, hey, this hash is associated with these other elements of artifact constellations. It's associated with this file and it's associated with these persistence mechanisms and, you know, this other data, for example. Are we populating it as a result of the incident responders and forensic analysts? Or is that being populated by external sources? Open reporting, virus total, or analyzing files extracted from virus total. You know, we see a lot of organizations that are publishing open reporting that say, you know, hey, we were doing our due diligence and looking for new new items being posted to virus total. I mean, that's a, a lot of folks don't really pay attention to that kind of statement at the beginning of, of open reporting, but that really tells us a lot about the data source itself. Yeah. Look, this is a humongous problem because now we're not is it? the organization itself. Well, is it a problem though? Because there's businesses that exist and when we say businesses exist, there's businesses out there that make money and have made money and will continue to make money based on this business model. Oh, it depends on the objective. Yes. Well, let's speak to what I would think is an objective with integrity. So perhaps that's just my personal <laughs> perspective over here. The objective with integrity is that there should be stronger collaboration and communication among these teams. So I ask you then, how would an organization build that? So that we so let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Who's going to pay for it? Uh, yeah. No, not. really, seriously. It's that's true. really the question, it's so isn't true. it? It is. Isn't it? It's so unfortunate and so true at the same time. Give me an ideal world because <laughs> perhaps, perhaps we can go fight for a budget to fit that ideal world <laughs> for a good reason, a good cause. So what, what would be ideal in the situation? Well, part of the issue with like, for instance, the incident response business model specifically is that it's largely based on utilization. Okay. And I know, I know there's a lot of folks out there that are going to go, no, no, no. It's not based on utilization at all. I've been in those organizations and on our weekly meetings, the first or second slide in the, you know, the presentation from the managers is, Hey, you know, here's the top scores for utilization numbers this week. And you're just like, what? <laughs> you know, I thought you said it wasn't about utilization. So the question that becomes is how do you take something that's currently a utilization business model? and transition it to something that's more ideal in along the lines of what you're referring to. How do we do that? I guess the real question is, is do we want to? Does anybody want to? And if you were to say, well, how would we do that? Well, we've done a lot of transitioning over the, you know, I want to say over the last decade, decade and a half to the SOC. You know, we see, mm. we're seeing a lot of talk about uh, SOAR or different SOAR-based products. And we hear uh, talk about burnout for SOC analysts. So SOC analysts or something, or, or SOCs themselves are sort of um, in the forefront. And they can incorporate, you know, 
logging through SIMs. They can incorporate uh, EDR or whatever flavor of DR we're talking mm-hmm. about, NDR, XDR, you know, whatever we're going to yeah. add to it. But it all comes down to basically the same thing. And so if we transition from a completely separate business unit altogether and say, we're going to have this capability out here and we're just going to, you know, it's just going to, we're just going to take calls. We're just going to do instant response. We remove that utilization model and incorporate those analysts, the deeper analysts as say, either a higher tier, higher level analysts within the SOC themselves. So when something is escalated to a certain point, it then, boom, it then crosses a threshold and becomes the purview of the forensic analysts. That's one way to do it. Okay. And then we can still serve those individuals that are not SOC customers. We can still do that. And how do we do that? Well, think about the old way of incident response. You know, I would get a call and say, you know, most often on Friday night, you know, usually around sometime between 7.30 and 10 p.m. And, uh, and then I had to I had to book a ticket. Depending on where I was going, it was either multiple layovers or I couldn't get a ticket till, say, Saturday morning or Sunday. So there's already a delay, mm-hmm. right? And then I get on site because I'm traveling. There's nobody to work with the customer and start collecting information. So when I get on site, I have to collect everything. I have to start asking questions from ground zero. We were, now we have a second delay. And then you add to that, well, where are your logs? Well, we're not keeping logs. No. Or where's your asset inventory? Well, we don't have an asset inventory or network map. So we're really starting with ground zero, mm. but even, even deeper ground zero. We're below sea level at this point. Now, if instead I immediately deploy a package to the customer that's some sort of EDR-based technology and I'm instantly collecting information... I can start collecting information within minutes and start developing the scope of the incident itself rather than the delays we have of, okay, you know, I'm the incident responder, but I have to go offline because I now have to interact with the airline ticketing system, right? I have to book my flight or I have to talk to somebody about booking flights, whatever the case Mm -hmm. may be. We can immediately put all of our attention into collecting the information that we need even when those sources may not already be available. So we can start collecting information. We can start producing answers faster to the customer with more accuracy. So in addition to getting rid of completely the old model, we're now incorporating it in the new model. When somebody comes in and says, hey, I have an incident, guess what? We deploy our EDR technology and we start collecting information right away. Now, obviously, if an incident's already happened, what we're going to collect through EDR is going to be limited. But the EDR we use should have the capability to collect historical information for analysis so that we can do that retroactive look. But we can also at the same time monitor going forward. This would be very, very useful in things like PCI engagements. A lot of the nation state threat actor things especially would be extremely of value because we can start scoping the incident right away. We can start developing tactics for remediation as we're doing the scoping, as we're developing an overall view. And so what we do is we break down the silos and we break down those things that created the silos in the first place, and we start mm-hmm. integrating threat intelligence. So digital forensic analysts collect information from the endpoints at the level that they're at. One of their goals, one of their tasks, one of their KPIs needs to be sharing intelligence with the threat intelligence unit. They need to be creating detections that are then deployed to the SOC. Because anything I find on one customer is going to be a benefit on another customer. Absolutely. You're one of the few people I've spoken to that can actually use a tool for the sake of collaboration and sure. inter-team, and inter-team communication. I, I mean, I'm sure there are various others who do, but I would say that as far as those that I've spoken to, 
mm-hmm. over the course of time, many damn tools. And yeah. they require There's a lot process. of tools. Yeah. yeah. But you seem to say, at least in this engagement, that there is a wonderful way where you can actually utilize, be it your insert letter DR tool, mm-hmm. but ideally a good EDR tool to actually bring people together within the IR process. So sure. that with certain adjustments to process, mm-hmm. uh, which, so I, I think that you're giving some just fantastic feedback over here, there. So let's also look at how you would summarize the state of cybercrime threat intelligence from the actor's perspective. And what I mean is, is from the cybercrime actor's perspective. Well, that's kind of interesting because I've, I've had yeah. some insights over the last couple of years based on my various roles. And I have no illusions, okay? I don't have any illusions. I think that as many threat actor categories or threat actor dossiers, whatever term you want to use that we have at our different cyber threat intelligence groups or units, I think they have the same thing on us. I think they have classifications of defenders, honestly. But I think it's also to various degrees, much like it is on our side. And the reason I say that is because EDR has given us the visibility to see those that just don't care. I've also seen threat actors go into organizations and look for specific EDR tools mm-hmm. by name, not just like, hey, give me a dump of all the, all the services on the system. It's I'm going to dump the services, but I'm going to look specifically for, you know, insert name, you know, CrowdStrike Falcon, Carbon Black, whatever the case may be. They're, okay. They have situational awareness that so they're looking. And so we have to make the assumption that there is a level of situational awareness. One of the things that I've, I've seen um, that actually started, I believe, January of last year is when I, I became aware of it, not that it, that's when it started, was that a lot of the executables that we were seeing come in to organizations were just bloated. And when I say bloated, you know, you have an executable that all the functionality is less than 100 kilobytes, but the file comes in at 600 megabytes or more. And, you know, towards the end of that period, if you will, in my, in my role, we were seeing executables that when they got on the system were close to a gigabyte in size. Wow. And, you know, knowing about PE file formats and things like that, you know, I started asking questions like, okay, yes, we have the hash and we know that the hash took longer to generate. But let me ask you this. Have you parsed the sections And do you see like a specific section that is enormously large and just full of junk or just full of zeros? And what Mm. we're seeing was one section that was just full of zeros. So the question becomes is what's the point of doing this? Look at our own processes. Like for instance, some, some EDR tools, when you, um, when they collect uh, executables that are, you know, newly seen executables that are are, uh, run on systems, they collect a copy, but those tools have a limit to what the size of the file that can be downloaded. So if the limit is set at 25 megabytes and the file that comes in is 600 megabytes, now I have to go back to my engineering staff and request assistance to download that specific executable. And then once I get it, what am I going to do with it? I'm a SOC analyst. Am I going to do malware reverse engineering? No, I'm probably going to upload it onto one of these automated analysis platforms, which have size limits, right? Right. And so now I am... My functionality, my capabilities are inhibited oh, because of the limitations of the tools. Fairly ingenious, yeah. Yeah. When you, I'm not saying that this was the intention because you know I'm not sitting there with the guy who's doing this or the girl yeah. who's doing this. You know, it could be the one. But Smart what I'm saying to be. <laughs> well, well, I'm what I'm saying is is this is the perspective of how it impacts the organization, how it impacts the individual analyst. 
I can't get a copy of this file because of the limitations of the tool Mm -hmm. I'm using. I can't upload this file and get the answers I need because of the limitations of the tool I'm using. And the threat actor can't modify those limitations, but what he can modify is what's within his scope Mm. of control. And if if I add an additional 500 megabytes of zeros to an executable, I don't change its functionality. No. But I do have an impact on the ability of an individual analyst to determine what's going on here. Oh, that's incredibly brilliant. I know yeah. you're not saying there's anyone who's actually doing that, though I'm not leaving it out of the scope of possibility. I truly think that anyone would. But wow. Well, there yeah. we go. That's another perspective on tooling here. We had a really cool one. And then now yeah. we have another that says, yeah. hey, up your game, because now this is a way to fight back. So to bring this all back, I do believe, you know, it, it seems pretty clear that there are is at least some level of threat intelligence on the actor side. There has to be. There's yes. There's no way. Exactly. There's impo- There's impossibility about there being not being that. So, mm-hmm. so this is one good perspective. As you start to find, well, hopefully you'll think about this question even after this, and then start to find what perhaps is a threat intelligence tactic used sure. by many of these groups in some and then continue to post on those things. I know you already do. But we even going back to NotPetya, for example, you know, in 2017, when we saw the issues where the MBR was damaged and we weren't able to recover, you know, initially recover information, we were able to, uh, the organization I was with at the time had an old school analyst and we were able to reconstruct the MBRs. But That whole situation just made it absolutely obvious to me what was happening with respect to anti-forensics techniques. So different things are deployed. And I think not just anti-forensics or counter-forensics, but I think the MITRE attack framework refers to some of these techniques as defense evasion. And techniques that are used specifically to inhibit or obviate the analyst's ability to determine the scoping and, and beyond. And so we hear about things like, well, clearing event logs. Well, why would you clear event logs? Well, they're a pretty critical source of information for what's happening on the Windows system. You know, why would you delete these things? Or why would you take this particular tactic or take this particular approach? Well, all of that's because of, hey, this is important to the forensic analyst. So I'm either going to not populate that data source because of the actions I'm taking, or what I'm going to do is I'm going to remove that data source from use. Let's talk about that old school analyst that you mentioned. He was able to look at, take a few pretty straightforward steps and determine the necessary geometry of the drive to be able to reconstruct the master boot record. And from that, we weren't able to, and we didn't, we didn't want to, we weren't able to boot the system, but what we were able to do is open it in most forensic viewing tools, you know, for instance, in case or FTK imager or something like that. We were able to open it to the point we were able to dig into it, read the file system and be able to extract information. So having him around allowed us to do certain things that otherwise we would not necessarily have been able to do because the tactic that was used at the time was beyond the reach of most of the analysts we had out there. It completely stopped us from what we were doing. That's big. And that's an old school analyst. What's going Mm -hmm. on now where that's not a a tool set, a skill set? I think it's a learned idea. I think that some of the things that we're seeing now, I've referred to recently as to what's, what's old is new again. You know, for instance, the use of alternate data streams. That's always been very, very interesting to me going back to, you know, the very early days of NT3.51. But how many people were around back then that are currently working in the industry? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So there are some things that, you know, we were used to seeing for the longest time that sort of disappeared from view for whatever reason, either they weren't used or we, we just moved on to a role where we weren't looking at them. And then suddenly we see an analyst that's having to learn about them all over again. Hmm. You know, we see a new analyst, maybe a SOC analyst that's been in the industry for two years or a D for analyst who transitioned from another role or from a completely other, you know, I, I read recently somebody came out of six years in cosmetology. Now they're a SOC analyst. And that's great. That's awesome you know? for them. There's a lot yeah. to learn. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot to learn, but yeah. yeah, it's a lot to learn. So there's always going to be something new. And sometimes those things that they're seeing new for the first time, some of us have seen before. I first was interacting with, I can't say Windows, it's got to be DOS systems like 40 years ago. <laughs> You've and, got time. And, yeah. and I saw I saw things at the command line that analysts are being presented with today. And they're like, oh, what is that? It's like, really? You know, but it's just, it's just, they haven't seen it before. I will be the first one to raise my hand. I haven't seen everything before. It was just September of this year that I realized that I understood that you can use Bits Admin to transfer files over SMB instead of HTTP. Okay. It's like, wow, I'd never seen that before. I think we're in a phase where universities should start teaching history of cybercrime courses. Bring up yeah. case studies like this. Bring yeah. up practitioners who've had experience here so that people can say, oh, I remember that from that one case study. Because why Why in law and jurisprudence do we have lawyers who remember cases from the 1800s and 1900s in the United States and can go ahead and cite them or crawl through things and say, I remember this one thing because mm -hmm. it was just drilled into my head in university and then law school. And then I had to know it for some odd reason for the bar. Why do we have that? Mm -hmm. And we can't apply that historically in cybersecurity. So maybe we can. But the problem is, I think the challenge is, and this goes back to a quote from General Mattis, where he said, uh, oh, you know, okay. if you're not if you're not reading hundreds of books, you're functionally illiterate. And he also stated that our own personal experiences are not enough to sustain us. And if you apply both of those to the question that you just asked, it's we just don't have enough people that are writing in cybersecurity. And I mean, writing stuff that can be used in that manner, writing historical looks, writing those types of cases, like writing up those types of cases. You know, I've talked to individuals about some of the stuff that I saw years ago on uh, PCI engagements and how we unraveled things. You know, I've talked to them about it. But do we see these things being written up on a regular basis? Do we see sort of a historical look on a, from an individual in you know, I was talking to my daughter recently and she was asking me what I was, you know, what types of books I read, what types of uh, things I like to read. And I told her, I said, a lot of times I'm less interested in the, the high level historian geopolitical view than I am in what's going on from the soldier on the ground. Wow, very much. So I like to read the, of things. Right. The, the, the practical application that the what's actually happening on the ground. And we don't have enough of that, I believe, in my perspective. We don't have enough of that in cyber, especially in digital forensics. Okay, message. <laughs> message yeah. for everybody. Well, message um, for everyone, but now I realize it's something I've got to take on. So <laughs> you're, You've published a great deal, and I'm more than certain that because this is top of mind for you and it's actually an interest, you'll be one of the greats here. No, we'll we see about probably. that. I think so. Let's see about that. So. All right. Well, let's look at, how about let's look at the future then. Zooming out okay. into the future, what do you think the future of the cybercrime underground will look like? And let's let's quantify this. Let's take a mm -hmm. year out. And then mm -hmm. if you can go any further, you let me know. Well, I don't generally like to uh, prognosticate. 
I don't like to make predictions, but I think for a lot of reasons, we're going to continue to see the same things we do because of the silos that we have. You know, we're, I want to say it's self-inflicted, but it's not really. When you really, really think about it, business units and business models are exactly that. They're about businesses. And what are businesses driven by? Businesses are driven by money, which comes from customers. So a lot of the stuff that we're seeing isn't, you know, as we see as limitations within the industry aren't going to change until either somebody makes the investment or a customer comes along and says, you know what, this ain't working for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's hard to get around that. It's so we, we spoke about this at the top of the call. Yeah. Uh, incentivizing the customer to care a lot more to make so, changes that we would recommend. So like that brings to mind GDPR, for example, when GDPR came out or it was coming out, you know, one of the questions I had in my mind, because I was working in a consulting company that had ties in Europe as well, and customers from Europe, the question was, is, you know, what's the impact going to be? You know, are we going to have, you know, more of these coming in because now there has to be reporting or, you know, is there going to be some other effect, some other impact that we don't realize? You know, for example, are we going to get cases in where somebody says, hey, you know, I'm being hit with this, or I'm being hit with this fine. Can you prove or disprove it? We never, I don't think we ever really saw that. I didn't have, as a consultant, I didn't have the full view of what was going on across the organization. I just knew, you know, my little lane and, and the lanes of those near me that, that I engaged with. But as we look at changes that are going on in uh, the cyber insurance industry, you know, we've got these exclusions for war that pertain to things like the Ukraine conflict. But the question becomes is, you know, the thought becomes is, where does that attribution come from? Who, uh-huh, who, yeah. make, who makes the attribution? So who decides that when, when something happens at a customer and an individual organization, when something happens and they have insurance, who makes that determination? And then if somebody's going to make the determination, somebody's going to question it because somebody, one of the parties, the carrier, the customer themselves, the insured, somebody's going to come out on the short end there. And so yeah. somebody's going to ask questions. So what's that going to do? How, what impact is that going to have on the boots on the ground analyst? Who does? Why include? Why include that exclusion requiring attribution when attribution is one of the most difficult <laughs> problems within this industry? Why include that? Is, is it because the the effect of this act would be so grand that insurance companies don't want to take it on? Is it because they don't want to politicize their own actions? Like what? What is this? Why include that as a stipulation? I can't speak to that. I'm not, I'm not a, you know, I don't work in the insurance industry. I don't do the, you know, actuarial data, things like that. But mm-hmm. that's a good question. That's a really good question. Maybe this is a result of, and I, I say maybe because I'm speculating, maybe this is a result of the insurance industry, the pendulum swinging back the other way. Originally, they were, you know, allowing for policies for pretty much anything. And maybe now what's happening is a now, um, you know, maybe that that's run its course. Maybe we're now going to have to take a really hard look at, you know, what's going on. I mean, with look at ransomware, yeah. you know, with the number of ransomware attacks. And, you know, I say the number of ransomware attacks loosely because how do we really track that? You know, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, but the fact of the matter is, is look, you know, what we don't have insight into is how many claims are being made for cyber attacks that are the result of ransomware. And so when you look at, you know, the impact that this is having, not on the organization, not just on the organizations themselves, but on the insurance industry, then maybe the approach to take is instead of just allowing somebody to have a policy that covers this, which does nothing to protect them, because in order for them to get the payout, you know, as a result of their policy, they have to have been impacted by that attack. 
Right. So it's not preventing anything, right? So, you know, maybe the insurance industry is looking at going back the other direction saying, you know what? We're going to put conditions around this now. You have to have this in place. You have to be this tall to ride the ride or you don't get the policy. Yeah. Uh, as insurance companies do. Yeah. And that makes sense because, you know, even going back, I think it was about 12 years ago, you know, I was talking to senior executives at Kairos Technologies, the folks that actually produce carbon black. And their goal when they produced the carbon black EDR, their original method of getting it out there was to go to the insurance industry. Hmm. It didn't work, you know, I'm sure not for the lack of trying, you know, but, but the industry's changed in the past decade, you know? Yeah, I can understand the logic when insurance companies wanting to make sure that they do health checks so that they sure. can maintain a healthy like risk response as well. Well, it's interesting you say that. It's interesting you say that though, because what I don't see, and this ties back to what we're talking about history, what I don't see is the insurance industry learning the lessons that have already been learned by the PCI industry. Is this because, because they want to do a make money fast? In this industry idea? Or? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a business leader in the industry. I'm, I'm boots on the ground. All I see okay. is that, hey, look, we have these, you know, I see changes in the insurance industry. I see movement and growth in the insurance industry that I saw actively working PCI engagements 15 years ago. Huh. I see the same issues. I see, you know, some of the same things happening. So it's like, why didn't we learn from what worked or what didn't work then and apply that now? And given the breadth of access that insurance carriers have, we could potentially have a much greater impact. You know, Harlan, with the time we have, I can't even dig into it. Will you publish something on this? <laughs> please, do, please do. Be it a blog post, it's even a blog post, a few paragraphs on lessons learned from PCI. Insurance, yeah. what can you take away? I, I think in large part, I'm already viewed as uh, the old wacko sitting out there yelling at the young kids to get off his lawn. So why not just add to that, right? Add to it. <laughs> yeah, it actually is helpful. It's helpful when people get a little bit more whacked out. It's, yeah, I'll... Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll... For yourself. Yeah, I'll own that guy. I'll be that guy. Do it. Do it. There's no harm in it. We need, we need a spectrum of intelligence here. So I'll give you just one last question. Okay. What are some three pieces of actionable advice that you'd give to security practitioners that are listening in? Uh, define your goals before you do anything. Define and understand your goals because that drives everything else. Make sure to validate and verify because too often we're trying to get the easy answer and we don't really validate or verify what we're looking at. Make sure you do that and just keep it simple. I've seen too many analysts over the years trying to write up a report and a ticket or write up a forensic analysis report. And they're like, how do I say this different? And my response is, why do you need to say it different? Why not just be clear? So I think those are my three things. Have your goals, validate and verify, keep it simple. They all carry so much weight. I hope so. Simple, but validate, verify. We spoke to some of the issues there. We spoke to, yeah. So everything carries a lot of weight. Those are some big life lessons. Uh, all right. Well, unfortunately, and I mean this, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. But before we head out on this call, where can our listeners find you? Well, I maintain the Windows IR blog on a regular basis. I'm on Twitter as Keated89, and I am easy to find on LinkedIn because I'm the only one with my name. <laughs> all right. We'll make sure to provide those links, those sources. 
Thank you again for your time, Marilyn. I know we've had some conversations before this. Yeah. Every time I have a good conversation with you, I feel like we've run over our time plus some. So it's really a joy to speak with you. And let's just keep in touch. And I'm excited to get feedback from others. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. All right, all. Thank you for joining into the Future of Cybercrime podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Please come on over back to us every other Thursday. You'll see posts on LinkedIn showcasing what we've got bi-weekly, and we will make sure to keep in touch with you. Reach out. Make sure to just engage with us. This is for you. Thank you all. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cybercrime podcast brought to you by Kella. For the latest episodes, please visit ke-la.com or search Future of Cybercrime on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.